This is One Step Beyond, and I am your host, Aram Arslanian. I'm the CEO of an organization called Cadence Leadership and Communication. And we work with organizations about helping people lead effectively in a way that's authentic and also communicate in a way that's clear and effective. So very often people ask me how I started the company, and I could say a whole bunch of things, but really where it started was playing in punk bands and skateboarding. It's those two things, like being involved in a culture where it was all about figuring out how to get things done on your own. How do you make that thing happen? How do you create this thing? How do you book this tour? And how do you do it with just you, your friends, and almost no resources? For me, there's been no better training for real world and especially the business world than growing up in the punk scene. And our guest today is going to talk about how punk played a huge role in developing his entrepreneurial spirit. So today we're speaking with Matt Sancombe, who has an incredible story. And I believe you're going to get just as much out of it as I did. So check it out. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're here with Matt Sancombe from The Hard Times and Outvoice, and I'm really psyched to have our conversation today. Uh, Before we get into it, I want to tease up the topic. So we're going to be talking about how growing up in the punk scene or the hardcore scene is really what helps us harness the entrepreneurial spirit. And Matt's got an incredible story that is going to prove all of that. I want to share with you how I came to this. So You know, I've talked a lot about when I started Cadence, I was already working as an executive coach in another organization. And one of the things that stood out for me is day one, when I started working there, my boss at the time said, Hey, you know, these tattoos that you have, yeah, they're not going to work for our clients. They're not going to think you're professional. So I want you to go and buy specially tailored shirts that are longer in the sleeves so that nobody can see your tattoos. And you know, of course I said no to that. And then a few weeks later he said, Hey, you know, all these like punk bands that you played in, you know, I think that's interesting, but no one else is going to think that's interesting. And in (laughs) fact, they're going to think that you're like a total nutter if you do that. So never mention to anyone that you played in a punk band. And then a few weeks later he said, Hey, you know, this thing about you being a therapist. Yeah. People aren't going to like that. They're going to feel that you're analyzing them. So never mention that. And and he said it to me, this third one, I said, well, what do you want me to tell people about my past? And by the way, we're going to need you to change your name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're going to start calling you Mark from now on. <laughs> totally. And, you know, I said, well, what do you want me to tell them? He's like, just tell them about our company. And it really struck me. It was like, oh, you didn't hire me for me. You hired me just to be like a warm body in, in the seat that's here to sell your services. And I worked in this company for a long time. But the thing that I realized is at first I thought I was trying to prove myself to my boss and like prove my um, worth. But after a while I realized it's like, no, I'm just, I'm just proving myself to myself. And as my confidence built, I wasn't earning my space in his company. I was earning my right to start my own company. And that's how I started Cadence. And at the core of that was punk, like playing in punk, not waiting for permission, just having a vision and, and doing it. And I believe that there's a lot of great lessons for people in the business world that we could pull from people who have been in the punk scene and have gone on to do really cool things. So we've got Matt here today and uh, I'm looking forward to it. So Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I think what you just said is really interesting. Um, One of the things I noticed in my life as I kept going about and on my uh, trajectory, I noticed I wasn't getting promoted very often. I think maybe ever, and I've never really been <laughs> recruited for anything. All of the titles um, that people look at me and go, oh, wow, he's doing so well. They're actually titles I gave myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, the having giving yourself permission to claim that throne mm-hmm. and saying, I'm going to go do this thing uh, on my own, that is very DIY. Yeah. Um, and I do think it stems from the punk scene. When I was in college, I had a little zine, maybe 
100, 100 copies, 200 copies. And uh, for some reason, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to Ian Mackay. And so I sent an email to like info at discord.com or something. And he actually got right back to me. I, I talked to him on the phone for like three hours. But I, I remember when I, he first picked up the phone, there's all this rummaging noise in the background. like peeps, And I was like, what's going on? And he's like, I'm on my back in a warehouse fixing a rack for these shelves, um, for these for these records. And I thought, that's kind of interesting, you know, that he's gotten this far and he's still in the warehouse fixing the record rack. Mm-hmm. And I asked him about it and he said, you know, uh, I just love doing the work and I'm never going to stop doing the work. It's not about how many records you sell. Um, you have to take care of the, the whole process from beginning to end. And um, I was very inspired by that. I thought it was interesting to think about how many records discords probably sold how many acquisition offers they probably had mm-hmm. uh but still the founder is um you know on his back in a warehouse mm-hmm. uh working away yeah and i think that's a that has a little bit to do with whether or not you don't need to look for promotions you just need to take the throne and say i have permission to be this person yeah i, I love what you're saying here um losing touch with the field or like the front line or, or really like the the impetus of how you started doing something like i am a firm believer that's like the end of your business uh if you lose touch with the most basic part of what you do like fixing a rack for example how are you going to be able to make good decisions about like the next big thing you have to do mm-hmm. um so let's and just for our audience i want to give them a little bit of a background uh ian mckay is really within the punk scene, like really well-regarded cultural icon, I think you could say. Mm -hmm. So he sang in a band called Minor Threat, which Minor Threat is, uh, I would say, arguably, if not the most important, definitely within the top three most important hardcore bands of all time. Uh, Most important for me. Yeah, uh, I'd say Bad Brains and Minor Threat definitely are my my, uh, top two. Um, He also founded Discord Records with Jeff Nelson and Discord Records really set the business blueprint for how you could do a record label and do right by your bands, make it your job and also not suck and not fall into a lot of the crappy uh, potholes that a lot of businesses fall into. So they've really become the archetype of the do it yourself DIY mentality. And you could hear any punk person anywhere talk about doing business, but they're not going to talk about it like dollars and cents and, you know, like bar graphs or any of that. They're going to talk about it on basic, the basic premise of what was set down by discord and labels like that in the late seventies, early eighties. So just for a piece of context, and we're probably going to hit a few different uh, things like that throughout the podcast. And I'll make sure that we explain that for everyone listening. So Matt, let's start with what you do today and then we'll go all the way back to how you, how you got there. Yeah. Uh, so I run a publication. It's a satire publication called The Hard Times. It's also expanded out into a video game vertical called Hard Drive. And then I also run a tech startup, which helps publishers pay their freelance content creators. And that one's called Outvoice. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I run two things. One's a publication and one's something that helps publications. Okay, right on. So yeah. uh, let's go from the beginning. All right. Well, um, I got into punk super young. Uh my older brother was into it. He started taking me to shows. Uh, I think my first show was like Catch-22 or The Addicts, probably like fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, time goes on. I played a bunch of little punk bands. We go on some tours. I get into making zines. And I really like interviewing musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I kind of have a knack for it. Uh, people seem to open up when they talk to me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm having a lot of fun with these zines. They're kind of comedy zines. And college rolls around. I don't particularly want to go to college. I just want to play my band. But of course, there's so much social pressure to go to college, right? So I go to college and I have to pick a major. I decide journalism might help me make my zines better. <laughs> so, so I go ahead and I do that. Um, I remember on the orientation day, the professor on the stage said, you know, look to your left, look to your right. Um, both those people won't be here by the end of this program. And most of you won't get a journalism job when you're done because journalism was in a really tough spot. Um, I was, uh, I interned at SF Weekly. I became a music journalist, basically. I became the music editor for the college paper. Um, I started to learn some actual journalism skills. But I had this idea, maybe I could mix my zine comedy voice with my actual journalism skills now and make like um, punk comedy news articles was how I envisioned it. I actually wasn't, 
super familiar with The Onion. So it wasn't like a blueprint I was taking from them. It was just I thought I could do comedy news. And I was going to make it a section in my zine. Um, I showed it. I wrote some articles in college. I wrote maybe like six or seven Hard Times articles. Mm-hmm. I showed them to some friends and they said, nah, this is no good. <laughs> no one's going to read this. You're going to get in trouble. Uh, you know, you just shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. And I actually kind of thought about it. Like, ah, maybe you're right. You know, so I didn't do it. Um, anyways, fast forward a couple of years, I become an actual journalist, uh, music editor or music writer for SF Weekly, Vice, Noisy, all these different things. And I was trying to freelance full time. And uh, everyone was telling me how good of a writer I was, but I couldn't pay my bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, freelancing is very, very difficult. And I thought, what is the point of being a good writer if I can't even pay my bills? Yeah. So I didn't have too much money left, um, but I decided to take a- almost all of it and start a website for that old idea I had for these punk comedy news articles. And so I found Bill Conway, a hardcore kid who I'd met through a podcast, and he wanted to help me with it. Mm-hmm. We worked on it together for a couple months. We launched it right off the bat, first month, over a million people were reading it, and it's gone up every month since. Um, So it was an immediate um, cultural success, and then we made it a business success after that. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So taking a step back, yeah. and to explain for our audience, a zine is the abbreviation for a magazine, and within punk culture, uh, the idea of just giving yourself the throne not relying on traditional sources of media saying like, oh, our bands are going to get known because we're in big magazines. Within the punk scene, people just make their own magazines. And zine culture is you know, pretty far spread at this point. Um, and I can't say that it originated specifically in the punk scene. I'm sure there's people making lots of independent publications, but I think the idea was really popularized through punk and hardcore. Um, so that idea of just, I'm going to I'm going to take this throne. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do my own uh, publication. I'm going to do my own record label. So when we talk, I did D- that too. Well, when we talk yeah. DIY, this idea is about not waiting for permission and also not necessarily being a jerk. Like I'm getting, I'm taking the throne and get out of here. There can be a lot of thrones, but this is mine and this is what I'm doing. I feel like I was never an aspiring publisher. Mm-hmm. I just made myself a publisher. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think it's worthwhile to ever be an aspiring anything really. Mm. I think it's interesting when you go through people's bios and they say, I'm an aspiring writer. Well, get a pen, yeah. right? Write something. Yeah, do it. Now you're a writer. Yeah. Stop calling yourself aspiring. Why are you putting yourself down? It's yeah. a very weird thing to do, right? So I became a publisher as soon as I published a zine. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a publisher who does it full time. Millions of people read my stuff, but I was always a publisher. Tell me about that willingness to do it because there was a point where your friends were like, hey, hard times? Don't do that. Don't do that thing. And you actually didn't do it. Tell me about why you didn't do it. You know, I think I was a pretty radically different person in my college life than I am now. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I had the level of confidence that I do now. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, if I really think back about what the difference was, um, I had like a, I was in a very long relationship. Um, It was like five years, like high school sweetheart thing. We broke up, Um, you know, there was, uh, I got cheated on, Mm -hmm. boo-hoo, boo-hoo, right? But it kind of um, wiped away a lot of my confidence and how I saw myself. Mm -hmm. And I think I rebuilt that through my business pursuits, Mm -hmm. like kind of brick by brick, I rebuilt my confidence and how I envisioned myself. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in college, I was more of a guy where like, oh, I'll just play video games. It doesn't really, I wasn't really leaning in very hard. I wasn't. I didn't have big goals that I was trying to attain. I, I just wanted to play in a band, which bands have goals, you know, but it's a little bit different level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was really the big difference mm-hmm. was I became, um, I'm, I don't think I would recognize myself really. Okay. The, the guy who said, you know, hey, what do you guys think of this? And they're like, oh, you shouldn't do that. And I'm like, all right, well, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not really that guy anymore. Yeah. Did you put down hard times at that point? Like, so when people were like, no, don't do that. Did you stop doing it or were you kind of doing it in the background? No, I stopped, I stopped doing it for years. I have, uh, I have all these ideas for things I want to do mm-hmm. and uh, they pop up all the time. So mm-hmm. you have to keep in mind the people near me who I, I shared this idea with are hearing these horrible ideas out of me mm-hmm. nonstop, like totally. machine gun, yeah. right? I'm always inventing things that are already invented, yeah. right? I'm like opening an Amazon box. And I'm saying, man, we should you know, there should be seeds in these boxes. They should be compostable. You could throw them in the garden and they'll plant a tree. Oh, that's so great. And then I Google it. It's already, 
It's yeah, already yeah. invented so every like, single time. These aren't people that you came up with this incredible idea and they were like, how dare you? Don't do that. It was like, you, it's yeah. like there's like a, a overload of ideas coming from it. It was like 30 minutes before that, I tried to invent a burrito in front of them and they're like, what is wrong with <laughs> right, this totally, guy? Totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, so these aren't, these aren't people that were like, they're not like negative friends trying to hold no. you down. They're just like used to like a constant flow of ideas yeah. and they're trying to help you pick and choose which ones to invest in. And so... The, the method that I use nowadays is I have a lot of ideas mm-hmm. and I throw them out there to people I trust and I sometimes do a little trial balloon and the ones I can't get out of my head mm-hmm. are the ones that I pursue. Okay. Um, so hard times, I saw just such an open green field ahead. I thought there's the New York Times and then there's Vice, right? New York Times, a legacy organization, and then there's Vice, the alternative younger branded one. Mm-hmm. There's The Onion. Why is there no younger branded alternative one? Mm-hmm. I was like, there's got to be room there in the media landscape for us. All right. And I just couldn't, it, the idea wouldn't leave my head. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, I remember when it, when I became aware of it, mm-hmm. I couldn't stop looking at it because it's like easily digestible articles, really short. Like, you know, they're, they put a smile on your face and it was almost like a, um, it's kind of like a, a cup of coffee, you yeah. know, like in between meetings. Uh, maybe you have a really tough meeting. You look at your little hard times article and it just jolts you up. But it's also like really insider humor that you have to be within culture to be able to really get it yeah. and to get the depth of it. And uh, it just it hit a space for me where it was like it was just a nice little thing that I could hit in the day. But it was also like our thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like your your um, passerby wouldn't necessarily, they, they wouldn't get it on the level that a punk or a hardcore person would get it. Mm-hmm. And that for me was the brilliance. It didn't just make me laugh. It made me laugh in a way that was like within culture. And that so was really important to me. It's like a shared community laugh. Yeah. Um, and that's a really important part of building a brand. I didn't, I don't think I knew that when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I thought not that many people would read it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really think there was that many people who would understand the jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I've learned since, because people come to me all the time with their visions of what they want to build, um, and I've tried a bunch of other things since, is that a lot of ideas are just too big in the beginning. Yeah. And starting off with something like, I'm going to make these jokes that land super hard for this group of DIY underground hardcore punk kids. Now that's an attainable goal. Totally. That's something that I did with Bill and 800 bucks, mm-hmm. right? Um sometimes people come to me and they throw me these ideas and it's like, okay, it sounds like you're trying to start vice. You understand that's like a billion dollar media company. They have hundreds of full-time people. You're not going to be able to cover all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So having that attainable idea that gives you a foothold, as long as your first step is correct, right? Then you can have a second step and Mm -hmm. a third step. You can keep growing on that. And since that time when you first stumbled across hard times and thought, Oh, this is directed towards me. We've done that now, you know, a bunch of other times for other communities and we're, we keep growing and growing and growing. And I think that's an important part of it. So for video games, for example, we branched out into video games and that already makes up 40% of our audience now. Uh, and we only started about a year and a half or two years ago. Yeah. And uh, you know, again, I want to put it into punk terms. So when we're talking about taking that right first step, um, so a right first step for a punk band would have one of my favorite bands, the first step. Oh yeah. I love that band. (laughs) Very cool. Um, so uh, one of the proper first steps would be have a good demo mm-hmm. and yeah. you can put out a lot of demos and maybe your third demo is the one where people are like, damn, that's a really good demo. Then the next step would be, okay, well now you can actually do a seven inch mm-hmm. and with a seven inch. Maybe you could do a national tour, but if you start your band and you're like, okay, we're going to start a band. We're going to go on a national tour with no demo and no presence. Yes, you can do that, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be a net, net loss. Like Mm -hmm. you're going to go out, you're not going to be road tested. Nobody's going to care about your band. You're not going to get in good shows. You might have an adventure, but it's not going to necessarily be a great adventure. Mm -hmm. And you also might not be able to keep doing your band. So as you're telling me around that, like first, like logical step earns you the right to take the next step. That to me is like very punk thinking. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. I also think it's, um, it's about having a proper niche. Uh, your first step has to target a very specific group that you can actually reach, mm. meaning like you have to have the megaphone or the marketing or whatever. You have to have members of, you have to have some label that's going to show you to the right audience. Yeah, right. And with hard times, I had made friends all across the country touring. Right. And so my one friend in Boston would share an article and my one friend in Philly would share an article. And then those scenes would hear about hard times. So it yeah. spread very organically. Um, 
I'm going to double down on something you said, though, about the demos. I have a theory about bands. Mm. Um, it's, it doesn't hold true all the time, but I found it to be true most of the time. Successful bands are usually pretty successful right off the bat. Mm. So uh, there's not very many bands who've put out two records and things kind of aren't going that great, and then the third record really pops off. Totally, totally. Uh, <laughs> And I played in a band for a while where none of the records were really popping off, but we thought, well, we went on a tour, you know, 30 days and we gained a hundred new fans and we were excited about that. Um, that was the level of feedback I was used to getting, mm -hmm. right? I put everything I have into something and I would sell 50 records. Right. Right. So with hard times, I realized, oh, sometimes you can put everything you have into something and get literally 1 million, you know, back. So right. you put in one you get a million back. Mm. Um, and that's when I realized, I started talking to some of my friends like Toast mm -hmm. or whatever people who play in like Ceremony or these popular bands. And I say, what was your band like in the beginning? I'm like, man, it's pretty popular. Yeah. And it's kind of just popped off right away. Yeah. There's not very many bands that just like grind it out for a solid two years and then all of a sudden something clicks. Yeah. Sometimes it happens. Mm -hmm. But now I'm really big into cutting my losses. Mm. I start a lot of new projects and six months in, if no one likes it, no. Nah. Whenever I'll kill it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I'm big into giving up now. Well, okay. So I wanted to ask you about that. So big into giving up. Uh, do you worry that that tarnishes your brand at all? I, no, no, I don't think so. It's, it's like a strategic retreat. Um, you know, hard time started and then we tried two other verticals. Mm -hmm. We tried a conspiracy theory vertical and we tried, uh, a sports, uh, extreme sports vertical. <laughs> And uh, neither one, we couldn't get any readers. <laughs> okay. I remember the, the extreme sports one, it was gonna be like, you know, skateboarding, MMA, pro wrestling. Mm -hmm. And Joe Rogan read one of the headlines on his podcast and still we couldn't get anyone to read it. I was like, we're pulling the plug on this thing. This yeah, is yeah. not gonna work. Yeah. Um, but when we started Hard Drive, our video game vertical, mm. popped off right away. Right on. So those are, I don't know, you know, maybe that just shows my abilities. Mm -hmm. But I'm really big into working on projects where they show immediate signs of progress right away. Okay. Otherwise, yeah, cut them loose. Yeah. Don't overinvest. Yeah. All right. So hard times, instant success. Mm -hmm. And then you try a few other things mm -hmm. and then hard drive, continued success. Tell us where you've taken it from there because it's, it's evolved from there and then it's also led you to different opportunities. Yeah. So um, when you have a brand that gets that big, a lot of offers start coming in. Yeah. So we put out a book. Uh, we worked on a TV show for a little while with some kind of uh, top-notch people. It didn't end up working out, but it was an interesting experience. We're still working on another one. Um, we started a satirical presidential candidate who's extremely popular. He's the first gamer running for president. His name is Ace Watkins. Um, he just gave a rally to like 400 plus people at PAX East uh, a couple <laughs> days ago. Um, he got 200,000 Twitter followers uh, just over the course of maybe four or five months, uh, all organically. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I kind of used uh, Outvoice, or I kind of used Hard Times to launch was my new company, Outvoice. Um, Hard Times uses a lot of freelance writers. I used to be a freelance writer. Mm -hmm. The way that freelance writers are paid is so archaic and broken, uh, it would shock anyone. Uh, you know, you write for these digital first publications and they're like, oh, this is, you know, we're we're on the cutting edge. We're leaning in. And then after you're done, you like send them a little piece of paper saying, I wrote my article. You owe me 50 bucks. And then someone signs off on it. Someone else signs off on it. They alphabetize it. They send it to accounting. Accounting writes a check. They send the check to the wrong place. It's just it's nonsense. Right. It's like they haven't updated the system since they built Hearst Castle. That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I teamed up with another hardcore kid, Issa, mm -hmm. uh, from Good Clean Fun. And we built Outvoice, which uh, integrates right into the content management system of publications. Mm -hmm. It's like the back-end blogging sort of space. And instead of a publish button, there's a publish and pay button. And so actually when a Hard Times writer writes an article, their payment goes out with the same click of a button that publishes their work, mm. which makes them paid in a more reasonable manner, uh, maybe not the price, but a more efficient manner uh, than writers at the New York Times or the Washington Post mm. or anywhere. So it was extremely powerful technology, and we just started um, spreading it out to other publications. Mm -hmm. uh, recently got Rolling Stone Australia on board, mm -hmm. and we're hoping after some success there, maybe we'll get the whole Rolling Stone on board. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's, been a real, it's been a really exciting time. Outvoice is a really fun technology. It means a lot to me because I used to be a freelance writer. Mm -hmm. uh, 
if you deal with a problem as a freelancer, then as an editor, then as a publisher, mm-hmm. and you get the opportunity to fix it, mm-hmm. it really makes you motivated to get up in the morning and start working on it. Well, it's kind of like your record rack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like you, you know what it's like to be in that like frontline seat. You know what it's like to be that person waiting on that check and like really needing it, not getting paid enough. Mm-hmm. And you're fixing the record rack mm-hmm. for yourself and for everyone else that's in that seat. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about partnerships, because as you're talking about the businesses that you've launched, I'm hearing names of guys I know, mm-hmm. but these are punks, like they're hardcore people. So tell me about partnerships. Uh, when you look for people to work with you on stuff, what are you looking for? I think that if you, there's certain types of punks, certain types of people in the hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. If you're the type who can organize four of your craziest friends to travel uh, across several countries in Europe and only lose 200 bucks over the course of four months, play a whole bunch of shows, um, I think you can kind of do anything. Yeah, I think it's a lot more difficult to be one of those band leader people than people really understand. Mm-hmm. And I think that every band kind of has a decision maker. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I see someone who comes from that world, I immediately feel a kinship with them. Mm. And uh, I think partnerships are a lot about having some sort of a similar thought process. Um, Another thing that I kind of look for when I'm partnering up with anyone is whether or not someone, there's certain types of people. Some people are, I guess you call them self-starters, but they're able to uh, grab hold of an idea and get it done and overcome all the obstacles that are almost always going to pop up. And then there's other people who are really only geared towards repeating a process that you've already laid out for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important to have partners who are going to not just be able to repeat processes that you've already designed, but create new, better processes that are going to create value for your business. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like my partner, Bill, at hard times, uh, he'll come to me sometimes. He'll say, I've been experimenting with this thing. Uh, it looks like we can do two more posts over here every week. It's going to jack up our traffic this amount of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't have to push him to do that. Mm-hmm. He just does that. Same with Isa. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the sort of people you need around you. Mm-hmm. Now, this, those, are, those are people I need around me. I think that is a personal thing, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever your weaknesses are, you need people who compliment them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so in the punk scene, punk is kind of, for a scene that is is about having no rules, it's traditionally extremely rulesy. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like a lot of like, if you do this, if you do X, then Y. And Y is like, you're you're not a punk or you're, you know, you're a fraud or you're a sellout or whatever. And, um, you know, when I was younger and I got into the punk scene, I was like, wow, it's this like community where everyone supports each other. And then you kind of hit that middle ground where people start getting successful and you start seeing like the, the fangs come out and the claws come out. Now being older and still really like feeling like a real connection to that community still and in a different way as you do, as you get older, um, I can look at it kind of with a, and chuckle a little bit about the abundance of rules. In fact, I'd say it's like maybe, (laughs) maybe the most rulesy place that I've ever been experienced, but I, I I can laugh about it now. So, um, being someone who's been like legitimately successful and how at least one of your pursuits is really rooted in the business world. Have you received any pressure around that from people who are like, hey, you know, like you're basically using this community to launch your own success? Um, someone smashed the window of my Tesla outside of Gilman. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's that. Um, God. Uh, no, not really. You know, I think the world's changed a lot. I think the punk world's changed a lot. Uh-huh. Um, I think that selling, I don't, you know, back in the day, Jell Biafra, you know, they beat him up at Gilman while yelling sell out. There was yeah. like that rabid nature of it. Yeah. And I don't see that very much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually see a little bit of the opposite. Mm-hmm. I see a little bit more punk kids being like, yeah, man, get that money. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell the punk community, I have turned down acquisition deals that would have made me a multimillionaire mm-hmm. uh, so I can continue to run my own businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're completely independently owned. We don't have to answer to anybody. Yeah. I've given shares of my company two editors at the company who were not founders. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're a little bit closer to a, not quite, but we're a little bit closer to a cooperative with no outside investment mm-hmm. uh, than we are to uh, your typical company. Mm-hmm. And um, so although we do have hierarchies and we do have business pursuits mm-hmm. and we strike ad deals and stuff, we definitely have that egalitarian punk ethos within us in many ways, mm-hmm. but it is a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, you know, one of the things that I've 
as I've watched the hard times grow and, you know, outvoice, I think both are cool. Like they're really, really cool. I think that there is, I'm going to piggyback off something you said because punk, this punk thing, what we're seeing is people don't cycle out as much. You know, there's still people cycling out, they age out, but I'm seeing a lot of older punks who are legitimately career people who are in their world. They're, they're doing businesses. Um, they work in organizations. And I think part of that shift that you're talking about is also based on, we have a more mature punk audience and those people want to know how to do practical things in the business world. They're going to look at something like the hard times or Outvoice and be like, wow, how can I apply what I learned in the punk scene to my own career? And something I, I really say to people very often in my work is that when people say, it's not personal, it's business. I think it's the most ridiculous thing because mm. we spend so much of our time working in our lives. Like it's all personal. If you hate your boss, it's like the most deeply like visceral feeling. Mm-hmm. If you love your job and you like your coworkers, it's another like beautiful feeling. Um, why wouldn't we apply what we've learned in punk to make a better business world, to make better businesses for ourselves? And also it's cool. Like if, if people could replicate your model, awesome, but that doesn't have to be the only model. Like people can use, uh, apply punk to making the work world better. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, I also think that hard times is an interesting story because although we did end up becoming a successful company, um, and we come from the punk world, um, the skills that we brought into building our business actually weren't they weren't business skills per se when they, we first started. So I was a writer mm-hmm. and a comedic performer. Yeah. Bill was a stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. But we ended up turning it into a real business. And so I had to go from being the guy who writes the articles to being the guy who understood how much are the articles worth and how yeah. can we monetize them yeah. and how do I negotiate these ad deals mm-hmm. and what is a programmatic ad stack mm-hmm. and what is the CPM I should expect if someone's on the page for yeah. 45 seconds and here's how they got there. Um, and I had to dig in and learn that stuff just like I had to dig in and learn about how to make a record when I started a label with my brother. Yeah. So it's an interesting because sometimes people who succeed in the business world, um, they don't come from a world that is, uh, I feel very related to. They have a Harvard business degree. Um, their father was a businessman. Um, they have professional connections. They were brought to some party. They were introduced. I always think it's funny when you read, because I'm in the tech world now, I read some headlines. It's like, oh, so-and-so raised $8 million to make this, you know, interactive coloring crayon box or whatever. I think, how did they do that? And then if you almost 100% of the time, if you dig into it, it's like, you know, that person used to work in the VC world. It's like they're at all the parties. They have all the personal connections. Mm -hmm. And I think hard times is kind of a story of someone who doesn't have connections, Mm -hmm. who um, doesn't have traditional business skills, Mm -hmm. who only comes from the creative world, who's only done punk things, Mm -hmm. but made an actual real business that has a lot of value uh, that other business people now have to reckon with. Mm. And we weren't promoted, we weren't chosen, uh, we chose to promote ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so if people in the punk world see that and wanna do their own thing, that's what I would like. Okay, cool. Um, let's go into some uh, practical business stuff. All right. Good. So we've touched on a bunch of themes and I like that we weren't just keeping it rooted in punk and, and just saying like, oh, well, you've gotta be punk to know these things. Instead, I want to break it into two streams of thought. So I want to do a little bit of messaging for people who are professionals who come from the punk scene and like what they could really start putting into play to help them with their careers and then any projects or companies that they're starting. But also I want to look at people who are outside of community. So our average business listener, which is the majority of our of our listeners, are people who are just normal business person who aren't from the punk scene. They might have an appreciation of it, but that's not their roots. Mm-hmm. I want to know what lessons we could distill down to them. So let's just start from with, the punk scene. Yeah. From the punk scene that we could that they could apply to their life. And in fact, let's start with them. If you were going to say someone coming up in the traditional business world, what are lessons that you've learned through punk that you think that they should apply to themselves, to their own career? I think that one of the biggest things you learn in the punk world I think maybe the entire punk world is just branding. Bands are just brands. Um, And I think it's funny when people, business people uh, have to run a Twitter page and they just hand it to the youngest person. um, I think they think, oh, that person's just good at the internet. No, (laughs) that that person 
understands brands, and I think punks really understand their own brands, even if they don't use those terms. Mm-hmm. Um, they understand what their band stands for, what sort of bands they should be playing with, what label they should be on, what aesthetic they should be looking for. So I certainly think that is a, something you can learn from the punk world and bring into the business world, is how to own, manage, and grow a brand. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had owned, managed, and grown several unsuccessful brands in the punk world, yeah. right? I had a bunch of bands people didn't listen to. I had a zine not very many people read. Um, and I started to understand how those things work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a couple successful brands mm-hmm. in the punk world, mm-hmm. and you understood how to grow them. Um, I mean, you ran a label, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, I mean, it sounds rudimentary, but one of the main things you learn being in a punk band is how do I source things at this price and sell them at a higher price and get my, my margin so that I can go on tour. You know, you're not like out there to make millions of dollars, but you think how, how much do we have to spend on these shirts? How much can we price them at so that we can get the gas to go to the next place? Um, so basic merchandising skills, um, come into play in the punk scene a lot. I would also say that, um, team building and team, small time leadership skills come into play. As soon as four people get in a van and decide they're going to go on tour, something about nature, a leader is going to emerge. Mm -hmm. And that person's going to have to deal with the motivations and emotions of their team in order to get them to succeed in their goals. Mm -hmm. So you go into the business world and let's say you're in the advertising world Mm -hmm. or whatever, and you're working with a team of three people, Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have to do those same skills. And I want to hammer on that because, uh, so the first one that you talked about, I think made like real clear sense. Uh, The one about merchandising and like understanding your margins. Mm -hmm. I think that's some like good rudimentary business stuff that people can spend time with. But I also want, I want to hit real specifically on this one. So very few people in the world know what it's like to get into a van and travel the country Mm -hmm. with five other people for 60 days. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of people know what it's like to go on like a long weekend road trip and get annoyed with your best friend, but then to also have to spend another 50 days with that person every single day, people don't know. And so when you talk about that idea of leadership, I want to hit on that because I think it's really important. And you talked about something is understanding people's motivations and being able to cope and deal with their emotions. Tell me about that. So I think whenever you start a project, you're going to turn into a leader for a group of people. No great thing is ever built with one pair of hands, right? So you're going to need to inspire and motivate a team to get behind you. Um, sometimes you're going to have the money if you're in the business world to inspire people that way. That's not the great greatest inspiration. Obviously money helps. Mm-hmm. But um, truly understanding how to get a team of four across a country, across a border. One of your guy has anxiety problems, right? How are you going to mitigate that? Mm-hmm. All these sorts of things that you learn in the punk world. They really can be transferred over. One of the things I learned about leadership, um, I wasn't the leader of my band, really. Mm-hmm. My older brother was. Mm-hmm. He really took charge when we were on tour. Um, one of the things I learned about leadership through the hard times is I think when people, before you become a leader, because I wasn't always one, right? I was a writer. I was, you know, an intern, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, before you become a leader, you kind of think of the leaders as like these like silverbacks uh, who are, you know, get what they want through might and they control the money and force and all these sorts of things. They can fire you. They're, they're intimidating, these sorts of things. I think I started to realize that uh, leaders really get their power from the community that they serve and the community that they serve empowers the leader because the leader brings them things. So you have to be like a champion for your group that brings them back victories Mm -hmm. and uh, motivates them through expressing your vision and and telling people where the ship is headed. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting, but when you're in a van and you're traveling the country and you have a really bad show and you have a 14 hour drive and one of the guys, you know, doesn't, doesn't like the band as much as he used to. Mm Being able to have a conversation with that person and get them to double down and say, you know what? No, we're going to hit the next show. We're going to keep going. That's a skill that you can definitely transfer into the business world. Mm -hmm. I think on tour, you'd also learn uh, that 1% of of people cause like 90% of the management (laughs) problems (laughs) uh, for any project. (laughs) 
So you're going to start to learn how um, you're going to learn when you have to cut people and when you have to motivate them and how many chances you can give people and some of those darker aspects of being a leader. Uh, and for the audience, the reason we're laughing is as soon as Matt said that myself, Matt and Dave, our engineer, every single one of us thought like first we all made eye contact <laughs> and every single one of us thought in our own heads of who our main offender was mm-hmm. in whatever band we were in. Like, yeah. yes, that person. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and so all of the above, and I think these are like really like very specific skills, like soft skills that you learn by playing in bands that you wouldn't necessarily get through almost any other experience. And they're super valuable in the business world. Uh, I want to hit on the piece of, so you talked about knowing people's motivations. Sorry, can I say one more thing before I forget it? Yeah. Um, I think touring also is a really big confidence builder Mm. because although it's not so dramatic, to a lot of people, the idea of getting in a van and spending 60 days in there and sleeping on dirt floors and not showering and eating in weird places, being very uncomfortable. It sounds like something that they couldn't do or would be very intimidating. And maybe before you go on your first tour, you even think that way a little bit. But once you go through that and you get through that, Mm -hmm. you really start to, I find myself Mm -hmm. to have a very high tolerance for bullshit Mm -hmm. um, that a lot of other people don't have. And I think it's based on, you know, how bad is it really? You know, I've slept in, some really rough spots, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Tour's not always a comfortable place. Um, I think that it it makes you, it helps you understand that you're not made out of glass. Yeah, um, so interesting you say that. I, I talk a lot about how playing in the punk scene opened up the realm of the possible for me. So I grew up feeling I had like a very small amount of choices. You know, I grew up being told I couldn't do things. I got like bullied a lot when I was a kid. And like, I really felt like I was in a very small box, you know, like uh, being the kid of the immigrant parents in a predominantly, you know, non-immigrant school, like all of the stuff that happened there. Um, Punk was the thing that opened up the realm of the possible. And when I would do things like put out a demo, play a show or go to a different town and play a show or go do a big tour, I learned all the things that I could put up with and all the things I could overcome. And every time I did that, I felt I had more choices. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, of course I can do that. And of course I can. And now I apply that to the business world. Like, you know, like what kind of grind am I willing to do? Or I also apply it to things like if I'm doing a distance race, like if I'm running or cycling, mm-hmm. it's like the idea of pain and suffering has been really put into a box of like, oh, of course I can do that. But I would never have been able to do any of those things without playing in punk bands. It's mental fortitude. You're developing Uh, your belief that you can push through it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And developing that mental fortitude, I think it's like incredibly important for all business people. I have to hit something though that you mentioned because I think it's super important. You'd said like a willingness to like, manage or deal with people's emotions. So like when, again, you're in a van for 60 days, that's happening. Like You're going to have to deal with it. But what about as a leader? And let me tease this up for you. Um, as an executive coach, I hear a lot of people, a lot of leaders are very avoidant to be involved with people's emotions. What they want to, for people to do is to not bring the big emotions into work, but that's not realistic, especially if we're going to have like a diverse workforce that in, invites a lot of different kinds of people in there. So when you said that it really, uh, it really sparked my interest in hearing how, how you as a leader approach that. Okay, so uh, in college, I didn't have a typical job. I actually uh, made money through uh, online poker. Um, I'm a pretty good poker player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually got the chance to play in a smaller, a small entry buy-in, but I got the chance to play in the World Series of Poker last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played in the biggest tournament, um, that the biggest live poker tournament that's ever happened. It's called the Big 50. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like 15... 25,000 people who played, I forget, it was over like six days. I got like 250th place, right? Mm. Um, I was very excited about that. It's not a big deal. But the the reason why I bring it up is because in poker, what you do is when everyone sits down at the table, uh, you understand what their level is, like what what their baseline is. Mm. And then you start to understand the deviations in that. And you try to, to understand whether or not they're feeling strong or they're feeling weak. Um, in the business world, I don't talk to as far as being a leader is concerned, I don't talk to any two people the same way. Mm. I base it all on what I believe, how I believe they need to be communicated to. Mm. Um, Because I found that uh, people do bring their emotions into everything they do. Mm -hmm. And if you can learn to harness that and have that direct them to creating uh, value for the company, Mm -hmm. 
uh, you're going to be much better off than just trying to ignore it. Mm. So there's a lot of people um, who need frequent checkups. Mm. They need to understand what the next step is. Mm -hmm. They need to understand the big picture and how the big picture helps everyone, but also how the big picture helps them. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people need to feel like they're a part of something, mm -hmm. that they own a, part, a piece of it. Um, something that I've done is at one point in time, not anymore because we've had some change-ups in our lineup, at one point in time, every editor for the site owned a piece of the site. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something you have to do, but of course, when people are thinking about going that extra mile, it's nice to know that they own a piece of the house that they're building, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, another element of this, back to the problem people, just because it's an unfortunate reality, there's going to be some people who, you know, the 1% takes up 90% of your time, and learning how to communicate with that 1%, if you can't cut them, because Jesus, it would be a lot nicer just to cut them, but if you can't cut them, learning how to communicate with them and what they respond to best is... Uh, a huge lifesaver as mm. far as leadership skills go. Mm. Um, it's something that I really wasn't good at at first. I would butt heads with people and I wouldn't, very weird specific example. You ever been in a conversation with someone where you tell them something that they've done wrong, you give them some sort of feedback and you say, hey, just so you know, um, you know, this article, we can't do those sorts of articles. Mm. They fire right back very defensively in a way that makes you seem like they didn't, they didn't register what you're saying. Because no, well, I have a very specific reason why we can't do the sorts of articles, A, B, C, and they fire right back. And then you go, okay, A, B, C, fire right back. I started to realize a lot of people that actually all you have to do is say it once, let them fire back the A, B, C, and then walk away. Because mm -hmm. it almost always has sunk in and they're going to actually going to, but they have a natural defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. They always express why they actually were right. Mm -hmm. But as long as you just say it once, they won't show that it sunk in, but it did sink in. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's little things like that, like over and over and over again with all the different personality types mm. that I think you need to understand as a leader, yeah. which is weird. You know, it's not really something that you would expect to be like, because you normally think, oh, we just need to worry about like revenue, yeah. expenses. No, man, like uh, uh, <laughs> this is this is like what I believe it's, I mean, it's what led me to my career. So mm -hmm. um, the willingness to be with people and work with them in their through emotions and like their motivations. So very specifically, um, I see a lot of leaders back off from that space and really they just want people to come in and play nice. And we know that's not how it's going to be, or they only want the nice emotions. And I, I want to be clear. I'm not telling anyone that you should put up with stuff or that you should like coddle people or juggles, uh, juggle things. But I do believe that if you're going to be a successful business leader and you want your position to be one of not power and authority, but more one that's like really you encourage and inspire people in a healthy way, you've got to get comfortable working with people's emotions. Again, it's not calling them. You're not a psychologist. You're not a therapist, but really understand people's motivation and what they need to really be able to do the thing and do it well and be able to do it with their heart. It's kind of like, you know, in baseball, mm -hmm. when the uh, when the coach runs out and gets himself ejected from the game, mm -hmm. when clearly he was never going to get the call reversed. Yeah. The reason he does it is to fire up his team. Because mm -hmm. if your team's not fired up, sometimes you can't win. Totally. So you have to realize when your team's not fired up and what you can do. Mm -hmm. um, that's not coddling. Mm -hmm. I think that's just a part of actually understanding that you manage a team. Yeah. Um, and if you let those things fester, you let a unmotivated team start to fester. Mm -hmm. I think a lot worse problems will start popping up. Totally. Uh, I mean, avoidance of it or expectation that people, um, need to, you know, I hear this a lot. Like, I wish they'd just be less emotional. Like, no, no, like part of your job, you, it's not, it's not on your check, but part of your job is actually helping people be able to deliver and be a part of an organization and doing that is also really being able to like work with their emotions. And I'm a firm believer in that. And I do agree, like punk bands, you know, you're in a van for a week or 60 days, you have no other option but to do it. And that helps. I, I really believe it helps people in the punk scene be comfortable with it. I also think um, something that I have transferred from the punk scene to the business world, particularly in leadership. I think it's super important to make sure that your people feel like they have a voice mm -hmm. and that every once in a while they see that we're going to go down a path that wasn't Matt's preferred path mm -hmm. because the entire team felt that way. Mm -hmm. And to know when, uh, when I want to throw that ultimate veto out there mm -hmm. and when I want to say this is a democratic process uh, with people that put a lot of time and energy into this and we care mm -hmm. and we're going to go down this path and we're going to make it work because it's what everyone wants. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, All right. So let's let's switch over to our other group. So now I want to talk about within uh, scene, within culture. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about for people who are outside of the punk scene. Here's some of the lessons we learned that we think would be valuable for you. What about people in the punk scene? So when we're thinking about people starting their careers, right? And they, they came up in, you know, whatever scene and, uh, they've, they've done the stuff like, you know, they put out the demo, they went on tour, or maybe they're a photographer, or maybe they're doing a zine, or maybe they're doing a website or any of the, the things that people do in the punk scene. What advice do you have for them about how they can take those skills, like those really awesome skills that they learned and use it to help them in their path? Oh yeah. Yeah. There might be more on that side than on the other side. <laughs> um, one of the things I think a lot of people in the punk scene don't 100% understand uh, that could really help them uh, would be to understand their target market a little bit better, understand the idea of opportunity cost a little bit better, and maybe to understand uh a little bit about like resource management or time investment. Um, now the goals in the punk scene are very, very different, but I feel like a lot of people uh, put out stuff with no real path to communicating with their target audience. Uh, in fact, maybe there isn't even a target audience. That's part of the art. That's fun. We all like that. Totally. But there's people who are actually trying to reach that target audience and they don't even know who they are or how they do it. Yeah. Um, Another big thing with around opportunity cost is I feel like so many people in the creative world will sink so much time into these very particular aspects of what they're doing and just throw everything else by the wayside. It's a, a kind of a really critical flaw a lot of people make. So it's like, what are you losing by investing all of your time into like, uh, I'm trying to try to think of the best example that wouldn't give away exactly who I'm thinking of. Okay. If you um, are going to tour somewhere, uh, what shows are you going to miss when you're on the road? I think a lot of people in the punk scene don't understand that. Mm -hmm. um, and if they did, they'd probably be a little, little, little better off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one that I think is really important, quit early. If yeah. something's not working, don't spend like years of your life dedicating something to like some, some terrible band that, that actually isn't good. And mm -hmm. you know, it's not good, not because the people don't get it. It's because you're not listening to the people. If you don't have an audience in a lot of cases, not in all cases, mm -hmm. if you don't have an audience um, for your zine or for your photographs or for your podcast or any of those things, it might be because it's just not good enough. Right. And it's okay for something to not be good enough. You take those lessons and you apply it to your next thing that you do and you make that thing even better. Um, one of the things that I, I love about your story, and I'm, I, I'm glad that you're super comfortable with being honest about it. It's like a bunch of failed brands before you got a, a great brand that really mm -hmm. mattered. And that's like, think of all the bands that we played in, all the things that we did that sucked. Mm -hmm. And we remember them, but nobody else did. And that's part of like how we build these things. That's like the opportunity cost I'm thinking of yeah. where it's, why are you playing in that band for five years when I know you love it? And that's not always what people, people aren't always trying to be popular in the mm -hmm. music scene. You know, sometimes it's just a way to get together with your friends, a way to travel mm -hmm. the world. Yeah, I understand all that stuff. But sometimes you cut your losses and you try again and your new thing can be twice, three, four times the size mm -hmm. of the first thing that you were doing mm -hmm. right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really understand that. You see, my whole life... <laughs> No one listened to me mm -hmm. and no one liked any of the stuff that I was doing mm -hmm. my whole life up until hard times. Mm -hmm. So I actually didn't even understand what success felt like. Yeah. I didn't even know that it was out there. Yeah. I just thought I was having a great time with my friends mm -hmm. and that's it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but you know, Oh great. I sold a, you know, a hundred zines. That is a success. Ian McKay said something on that phone call. You know, every day is a new success. Mm -hmm. Just every day you find some success in what you're doing. But once I felt, the sheer power of real success, mm -hmm. I started being like, wow. Yeah. I really sunk a lot of time into stuff that had no path mm -hmm. to success. Mm -hmm. You know, zero progress. I love the band. I kind of wish we still were a band. Yeah. Right. But it was this huge time sink that was never going to go anywhere. Yeah. And I didn't really get that. Yeah. And when I, once all those things started to fade away, started to fall apart, and I had that desperation moment of what am I doing in my life? Mm -hmm. That's when I tried the new thing. Mm -hmm. 
that was hard times. Mm-hmm. It's improved my life in every conceivable way. Mm-hmm. So I really think sometimes you got to cut your losses and start a new thing. Even if it's something you love. Yeah. Even if it's something you love. And I, I like what you said, like I've definitely been in bands or projects where I like doing it and mm-hmm. it's cool and you can do that. I also think, especially as I get older, what else could I do with that time? And I think it's a little bit easier to to do something that's directionless just for fun mm-hmm. at points of your life. And that could be early, mid or late, mm-hmm. but it's not always the right time to do that. It's not always the right time to be indulgent in that way. Can I say one more thing about creative projects? Mm. One of the biggest mistakes, because a lot of people come to me nowadays and say, here's my idea, here's what I'm doing. And I, I let anyone who wants to call me, call me and I'll talk to them about what I think they should do. Mm. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make is that right out of the gate, they expect their creative project to support them mm-hmm. or afford them a certain type of lifestyle and uh, or start kicking back directly into their pocket. And if it doesn't, they see it as a failure. Yeah. I think this is one of the biggest mistakes. You know, when I started Hard Times, uh, we didn't even have ads on the page for like a year. Mm-hmm. I didn't pay myself for two years, two and a half years. I had a full-time job during a decent chunk when we were really getting off the ground. Now, it was already successful per se. People were reading it. It was spreading all over the place, but it really wasn't helping me in any considerable fashion. It was just every day I just put stuff in. I was just putting in the time, putting in the money, helping it grow. Mm -hmm. Too often I feel people with creative projects, they try to pull from it Mm -hmm. before it's really ready. Mm -hmm. It's like you're planting a tree. You have to wait for the apple to harvest, Mm -hmm. right? You can't just chop it down for the lumber one weekend. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people do that. They go, I'm starting this creative project. Yeah, it's a podcast. So how much money can I get out of it? Do you have any listeners yet? Yeah. You know, do it for a year, Mm -hmm. build an audience and then monetize. Well, it seems like it's kind of, you're kind of contradicting yourself and I want to, so let's be specific because earlier saying like, no, like fail early, like no one to quit. And then the other side, it seems like you're saying it's contradicting. So let's just be clear on that. All right. Clarifying grow, then monetize. Uh Uh-huh. If you're putting your time into something and it's not growing, you got to cut that thing right away because yeah. it's never going to grow to the point where you're going to be able to monetize it. Right. Now, if you're putting your time into something and it's growing, mm-hmm. but it's not yet monetizable, mm-hmm. you're still fine. Yeah. You're still growing. Yeah. Right. So let's say you have a podcast. Mm-hmm. You put it out week one, 200 listeners. Mm-hmm. Week two, 200 listeners. Week three, 180. Week four, 220. Right. Um, I would say unless you love doing the podcast, I would say you have to either cut it or understand that the audience is never going to grow to a point where you're going to make any money, mm-hmm. right? Now, if it's growing, but you're still not making any money, that's when you continue to put money in, work a full-time job and burn the candle on both ends because one day the audience will get to a size when you can monetize it. Right. So with hard times, I saw the success right away enough to keep investing in it, but I didn't get the financial success yet. That makes sense. It makes perfect sense, and it goes along. Uh, like, say, so you know, Finn, right? Yeah, yeah. So Finn and I have talked a lot about these kinds of ideas, you know, with podcasts or mm-hmm. anything. Um, do it and and keep doing it. It won't be successful as first as long as you're growing it. Uh, mm-hmm. If it's not growing, then pull the plug. But if mm-hmm. it's growing, do it, and the mm-hmm. rest of the success will come. And and I firmly believe in that. And again, I think a good good punk example from that. And it's like if you're going to city city to city to city and those crowds are growing and growing mm-hmm. and growing. Keep doing it. Keep investing in it. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to city to city to city and you go to the same city three times and there's 20 people at the show every single time, uh, maybe go to a different city or maybe the band's not working. I out. guess what I'm trying to say is if you go city to city to city and it's always growing, but you're still broke, don't say this band's a failure. Yeah. yeah. You know, because with hard times, it was two years before mm-hmm. I gave myself a dollar from it. Yeah. Right. But it was growing every single month. Yeah. Sometimes those things take time. Yeah, totally. All right. So uh, this was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Any last thoughts? Thanks so much for having me. Uh, two of my favorite topics. Mm-hmm. Happy to talk about entrepreneurship, punk. Mm-hmm. Right on. Okay. So as we're wrapping up, I want to leave everyone with some thoughts. For me, one of the most incredible moments of this conversation was when Matt said, you know, I never got a promotion. I gave myself the title. And that idea of you don't have to wait for permission. If you want to start a business or you want to pitch an idea or you want to start a new project or if you see an efficiency somewhere, you don't have to wait for permission for someone to say, well, you're allowed to bring that idea forward or you're allowed to start that business. Just go out and do it. 
One of the most powerful things you can do in life is have enough belief in yourself to put value in what you want to do and then take the throne. So thanks so much, Matt. It was an incredible conversation. And Dave, drop the beat. You know, if you'd been in the studio with us during that whole time, I had a huge smile on my face. It's an amazing thing. The further I get into business, the more I meet people with stories like Matt. People who came up in the punk scene who have applied what they've learned into the business world and they're using it to do cool things, interesting things, ethical things. You know, I'm not interested in putting barriers on myself and saying, oh, well, I came from this one scene so I can only do this as a career. No way. Like, I'm going to take what I've learned and I'm going to do it to reshape the world in a way that makes sense. And I truly feel that there are a ton of people out there doing that. But I also want to just say, if you didn't come from the punk scene, I don't want to limit your ability to do this. You know, use someone like Matt as an inspiration. Look at his story and then look at your own and find the parallels and apply your willpower, your ideas, your vision, and your grit into rebuilding your world in a way that makes sense for your vision. That's it for this one, and we'll see you next time on One Step Beyond.